Well, good morning. Our sermon text this morning comes from 1 Samuel chapter 17. If you're using one of the black Bibles supplied to you there in the seats, this is on page 199, page 199. 1 Samuel 17. For now, I'm just going to read three verses, beginning in verse 45. Hear this now, the word of the living God. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Amen. You may be seated. Let's pray for the Lord's help. Lord, we pray as we consider this passage, that it will nourish us, it will encourage us. I pray for those this morning who are discouraged, who feel weak or beat up. I pray that you'll energize them and, and give them a zeal. I pray that for all of us. We all need a zeal for your glory. We all need to be picked up off our feet. I pray this will be refreshing. I pray your spirit will come and bless your word. We pray too for the lost, that even this day they may see the saving power of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. This is David versus Goliath, 1 Samuel 17. It's familiar. That's a challenge in some ways for a preacher. It's also a challenge for you, I think, because it's familiar to you. Um, had a brother speaking to before the service and he said, well, hamburgers are familiar and they're still nourishing. And the aim here is, though it's familiar, to be nourished by it. We do all get discouraged from time to time. And and Pastor Ryan, in the middle of 1 Peter, he's speaking about suffering and I think that's something we've been meditating upon lately. And I think even in the midst of that series, I think it's good to revisit some of these familiar stories. These stories where we know there's a victory at the end. We know how God has acted, but it's good to dwell on these from time to time, though it's familiar. Thomas Brooks, the Puritan, has said this, example is the most powerful rhetoric. And that's what we get in the Old Testament. We get these examples, don't we? David is a wonderful example, and we'll talk about that. He says it's the most powerful rhetoric. You may quibble with that quote a bit. But Paul says to imitate me in as much as I imitate Christ. Christ just says, imitate me, follow me, do what I do. So there's a sense here that when we read these stories, they're here for our example. And by looking at examples, we kind of see how these imperatives, these commands in Scripture are to be obeyed. So that's one reason to go to an Old Testament narrative like this. It's also helpful to see that we are on the other side of the cross. We have this great blessing of seeing Christ risen from the dead, ascended on high. But consider David, consider all of Israel, 
before Christ, they did not see so clearly what we see. So this helps us sense the longing that they have for that Christ. They were indeed given a promise early on. That promise is recorded in Genesis 3.15. Hear this. After they sin, Adam and Eve, God curses the man and the woman, but he also curses the serpent. And I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's speaking to the serpent here. And between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So one day Satan's head would one day be crushed by the seed of the woman. And this is the promise they're given on. Third chapter into Genesis. This is what they're hanging on to. Christ's heel, we know, Christ was crucified. His heel was bruised. But he will defeat the serpent. He brings new life to the man and the woman despite their sin. So this event is the ultimate aim and scope of the Bible from beginning to end. And as part of this plan, God sets apart a people for himself early on. Genesis 12, Abraham comes into the picture. Shortly after, Israel is formed. It is from this people that will come the one who defeats Satan. And so God, throughout the Old Testament, takes care of this chosen people, for from them the Messiah will come, and he sets them apart that they may bless the nations. That's what this is about. God is to bless the nations through Abraham, through Israel. And as the chosen of people but God begin entering into the promised land, the other nations, they know who they are. Because by this point, miracles have happened. These great salvation stories have happened. They heard about the Exodus. They heard that the God of Israel plagued the Egyptians. They heard that the God of Israel made the Red Sea separate and create a path that the Israelites may cross through. And they heard that God, that the God of Israel is unlike any other God. So as Israel is going in to take the promised land, many of these people tremble with fear. Many fight. They were still praying to their false gods. They, they chose instead of worshiping God to attack the people of God. And the Philistines were one of these People. They were an enemy of God, and they were a thorn in Israel's side during their conquest of the promised land. The Israelites were instructed by God, you may recall, to wipe out the Philistines. They didn't do it. They kept some of them alive. And the Philistines remained not far from the Israelites. And throughout the book of 1 Samuel, we see a series of battles and warfare between Israel and the Philistines. Most notably, at one point earlier on in the book, Chapter 5, I'm going to turn there. The Philistines steal the Ark of the Covenant after they notch a victory against Israel. And at the time, the Ark, remember, it symbolized the presence of God among the Israelites, and strict rules surrounded how they had to treat the Ark. No one even touched it except the Levitical class. And in 1 Samuel 5, we read what happens when the Philistines take the ark, they take it and they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod and they take it and they bring it in to the house of Dagon and they set it by Dagon. Dagon's a big, large statue of this false Philistine god. So imagine now for a moment, there's Dagon and then there's the ark of the covenant of God. So it's, in a sense, it's Dagon 
and Yahweh right next to one another. And they close the doors, they go to bed, and they come back, and in the morning, Dagon is face down before the ark. And there's, there's some sense here where it's, it's as if this false god is bowing down at the presence of Yahweh. What would you do in that situation? If you're a Philistine, you wake up, this big statue, your God, this prized possession of your people just falls over all of a sudden? And is it the face of the Ark of the Covenant? Well, the Philistines, they just pick it back up. What happens the next morning? Well, the next morning, they come out, and Dagon is fallen again. He's on his face again, but this time, his head is gone. His hands are gone. And they are afraid that this happened a second time. It was no fluke. And beyond this, God then plagues the Philistines. Many of them grow tumors. And so the Philistines say to themselves, let's get this ark out of here. And they just take it back and hand it over to Israel. So God gets glory over the Philistines. And this record is there for us. And it's a precursor I think, to 1 Samuel 17. God is glorified not because the people of Israel obey him, but because he is the greatest of all gods. And he will make certain, though his people disobey, he will make certain that he gets glory over all the other gods. There is no God but Yahweh. And this is at the core of the Old Testament. And I think it's really at the core of the New Testament as well. What sort of fear, what sort of confidence should this event instill inside the Israelites? They didn't even have to fight. In fact, the Philistines stole it. They take it. They get plagued. People die. That would foster a crazy sort of confidence. Or it should. It doesn't. The Israelites do not learn their lesson. And here we are several chapters later, 1 Samuel 17, and it's a familiar scene. So let's then look at this chapter. I won't cover every verse, but I encourage you to keep your Bibles open. Follow these specific verses that I highlight. We'll cover this in three headings before getting into some application. The first heading is this. The Antichrist harasses the people of God. The Antichrist harasses the people of God. Picking up chapter 17, verse 2. Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together and they encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in battle against the Philistines. The Philistines stood on a mountain on one side, Israel on the other. And a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. So the Philistines and the Israelites, they're at war again. Battle lines are drawn And there's a valley between them. And on either side of the valley, the camps reside. And you would think that the Philistines, not just the Israelites, by this point would have learned their lesson. But they have not learned their lesson either. They come out to fight the God of Israel and the people of Israel. They've suffered a devastating plague. Their God got destroyed in their own temple. But they don't surrender. They come out ready to fight. And this is like the great enemy of the church, isn't it? We, we would expect after some victories that Satan would kind of leave us alone. That's not the way it works. The enemy of God continues to press upon us and press upon us. Why? That's his goal. 
His goal is to destroy. His goal is to diminish the glory of God. This particular battle is a duel. The champion goes out, and Goliath proposes a duel and says that if any of the Israelites are able to defeat him, then the Philistines would become their slave. And the counter is that if he beats the representative from the Israelites, the Israelites would become slaves of Goliath and the Philistines. And not one of the Israelites show courage. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. You hear that? Israel is dismayed, greatly afraid. Every man at the battlefield is a coward. And this is shameful. God has routinely shown the Israelites that he will fight on their behalf. Yet each man is a coward, not one. And this continues for 40 days. Goliath comes out into the valley. He challenges Israel. No one accepts. And then he comes back the next day just taunting them, just taunting them. And he curses Israel's God. And this is like what the Antichrist does, doesn't it? Isn't it? The Antichrist just curses God. And he's, he's harassing the people of God. God is good and loving. The Antichrist seeks to steal, kill, destroy. There have been a number of Antichrist figures that have risen up throughout the the biblical narrative, throughout church history, we would say. So for his motives alone, we could say that Goliath is a type of Antichrist. He wants to destroy God's people. So that's it, case closed. He's an Antichrist. I'm sold. He's an Antichrist. There's more clues here. Goliath is like the Antichrist in that he's a representative of the Philistine army. He's a a representative, if you will, of the enemy of God. So there's that too. But even more, look at the way Goliath appears beginning in verse 4. His height was six cubits in a span. He's nine foot tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head. And he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a bronze javelin between his shoulders. Now the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam and his iron spearhead weighted 600 shekels. So he's over nine foot tall. Do you remember when Israel, when they, they first got a peek at the promised land? Why didn't they go in? You remember that? It was the giants. They didn't want to go in. They were afraid. There was a race of giants. And only a few had courage. And this is wrapping up to be a similar story, isn't it? They're afraid of the giants. So there's an allusion here, I think, to these original race of giants. And and Goliath is kind of representing that. Again, sort of giving us antichrist vibes here. But there's more. That word bronze, uh, this one is a play on words. So bronze in Hebrew and, and serpent in Hebrew, very, very similar. They're separated by one vowel. So when you read bronze, it sounds like snake. And look at how many times bronze is used. He had a bronze helmet, bronze armor, 
bronze javelin, all the way down to his toe, bronze. So think of that. Bronze, head to toe. Snake, head to toe. You see where this is going? There's a play on words. A number of theologians have picked this up. But there's even more. The armor is scale armor. It's scale armor. So, so we've got this image, this giant snake. And he's also scaly. Nine foot tall. Scaly snake. Just standing there. It's the Antichrist. He's like a dragon. He's like the serpent. More than that, 40 days Goliath harassed the people in the wilderness. Satan, too, for 40 days harassed our Lord in the wilderness. For 40 years, the people wandered in the wilderness. So Goliath comes out like Satan does with Jesus in the desert, taunting, tempting, trying to get them to bow down and be his slaves. This is no stretch beyond the plain reading. A number of people, as I pointed out, have, have pointed these things out. It's true, Goliath is a historical figure. He was a real man. He's a Philistine. But we cannot miss the language here. This event is, is not just about two men. This is really teaching something far beyond this. This indeed is a battle some 4,000 years ago, but it's a picture of the cosmic battle between good and evil. And so far, no one from Israel is willing to resist the Antichrist figure. No one. But a shepherd is coming. He will be the warrior Israel needs. So that's our second heading. The good shepherd is zealous for the glory of God. The good shepherd is zealous for the glory of God. David was not a part of the army of Israel. We can read some of this background, verses 12 to 20 or so. He is a shepherd, and he comes to the battlefield only because his father tells him to go check on his brothers and take some food to them. That's interesting. The shepherd sent by the father... And as David comes, he sees Goliath come out and he hears Goliath challenge the people. And right away, David is incited by this challenge while the rest were afraid. Note verse 24, all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. That's not a little bit afraid. They were dreadfully afraid at the sight of him. Goliath defies God and his people. The British theologian Dale Ralph Davis has made the point that this word defy is a key to really seeing the rest of this chapter. Clearly, it's repeated. Defy, detest. It's in 1710. It's in 1725. The Philistine said, I defy the armies of Israel this day, give me a man that we may fight together. And Israel knows, you can see in 25, they know why Goliath is there. He's come to defy Israel. Their problem is they think he's really going to do it. 
But more than this, Goliath is not just defying the people of Israel. He's defying the, the, the God of Israel. We have to remember that, that God is bound up with Israel. If people insult Israel, they insult God. It's another point Davis makes. And just as an aside, I think this is relevant that we do not disparage the church. There are some leaving the church. There are some deconstructing their faith. And then they turn around and they, and they disparage the church. You don't want to do that. That's what Goliath did. Because the church, you're God's people. You're God's people. They insult you. They're insulting your Lord. And that's what's going on here. They're not just insulting the people. They're insulting God himself. In the next few verses, David asks, what shall be done for him if he kills the giant? For the men in the army discuss this matter. So he does too. And then David says something noteworthy. He, he views the giant differently than the rest. Verse 26, for who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? You notice what he calls him? Uncircumcised. He's not one of the covenant people of God. Who does he think he is coming up here defying the living God? We are the circumcision. We are those chosen by God. What do we have to fear? Well, David then says he wants to go to fight the Philistine. And then there's a series of people trying to stop him. His brother tries to stop him. Saul tries to stop him. Saul tells him, you are but a youth. You are but a youth. And, and the giant, he's been a warrior since his youth. And David says to Saul, well, your servant used to keep his father's sheep, and he defends his record here. When a lion or bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went after it, and I struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it arose against me, I caught it by its beard, and I struck it and killed it. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. Moreover, David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And perhaps you, like me, heard this story growing up, and you heard this story as an underdog versus a favorite, a great giant. Goliath is indeed formidable, and we're meant to get that. And in a certain sense, David is an unlikely man to beat him. He is the youngest of his brothers, He's not a soldier by training. But he does have experience fighting bears and lions, and that should count for something. That actually is why Saul ends up letting him to go fight. Shepherds do hard work. They are tough men. But more importantly, just a chapter before in 16, we see the prophet Samuel anoints David, and the Spirit of God comes upon David. And if we read our Bibles up until this point in 1 Samuel, we should expect what's about to come. The man with the spirit of God, do we want to call him the underdog? So think of yourself, believer. You have the spirit. What do you have to fear? Do you view yourself as an underdog? We may suffer and get beaten or thrown in prison, but it can be misleading, I think, at times to think of ourselves as underdogs. So we too 
can stand up for the glory of God in our own day. It's one of the lessons. We should vindicate Christ. We should, we should celebrate his, his victory. We should be willing to speak up. The rest were on the sidelines. David gets in there. A quote from a Puritan named William Secker, did Christ open his veins for our redemption and shall not we open our mouths for his vindication? That's right. Christ bled for us. Let's speak up for him. The shepherd boy is zealous for the glory of God. Much like Jesus, the good shepherd, is zealous for the glory of God. Even when facing death, Jesus glorified God. He says this, now my soul is troubled, right before he goes to the cross. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. That's Christ's aim, is the glory of the Father. That's David's aim, the glory of the Father. And it got Christ through that dark night in Gethsemane, the glory of the Father. If you've ever wondered what's going on inside the mind of David as he walks out onto the battlefield, we are told the answer. He looks over, he sees the giant is nine foot tall, the giant has armor, David has none. Then verse 47 tells us what's passing through his mind, and it's this, that all of the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. That's the whole reason he steps out there. I am here that all the nations may know that there is a God in Israel. That's David's aim. And if you have the spirit of Christ, this is what the spirit stirs up in his people. This is what the spirit does. He, he, he creates in us a desire to see God's name magnified among all the nations. If you're in Christ, that just wells up in you, doesn't it? We want to foster that. We want that to grow. We want our faith to be strengthened. Third heading, the good shepherd defeats the Antichrist. The good shepherd defeats the Antichrist. So David walks out to Goliath. The two representatives meet. The fate of their respective nations lay at their hands. David chose not to wear the armor that Saul offered him. Saul's armor was of good quality, but it didn't fit him well. It was too big, and David was not used to it, so he goes without And a soldier, especially in a situation like this, should expect armor and the best of weapons. He could have received any armor, I would imagine, in all of the Israelite army. He could have received any any weapon, but he keeps his sling. Some would say the sling is a poor choice. It's not a poor choice. David owned one for good reason. The sling is deadly. It was often used in his day. And then David approaches And note, verse 42, Goliath looks on him with disdain. He looks on him with disdain. When he sees David, he has disdain. Goliath hasn't been goaded into this task. It's not as if they really had to say, hey, go, go fight him, go fight him. Goliath wanted to fight. He's proud, he's puffed up. He's he's not just he's not just giant, though. He's, he's full of fight. He's full of hatred. And that, when, it, when it says he looks on him with disdain, that's, that's what it means. He hates David. 
Goliath shows he's even offended. Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. That phrase, cursed David by his gods, that is, Goliath invokes the name of his gods that David may be cursed. And this is a real battle, but it's, this highlights that this is, this is a spiritual thing primarily. Goliath is invoking his God against David. And David responds, and this next paragraph, I think, is the heart of the whole narrative. This quote here, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel. So notice now that David is also invoking his God. He invokes the name of Yahweh. So David is under the banner of Yahweh, and Goliath has put himself under the banner of the Philistine God. So this is a God versus God sort of battle. And here is the fight beginning in verse 48. So it was when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David that David hurried and ran down toward the army to meet him. David put his hand in his bag, took out a stone, and he slung it and struck the Philistine in his forehead so that the stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the earth. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. But there was no sword in the hand of David. Therefore, David ran and stood over the Philistine, took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. So that's the fight. It's over before it starts. Many of you know I'm a teacher. One of the privileges you have being a teacher is that you learn, uh, you learn the new lingo. And one of my current favorites is the word extra. It's the way they use it. It means like over the top. Um, and so, so, so somebody, somebody will be dramatic in class and somebody will just go extra. Somebody just, just doing something. You're just like, okay, you're being extra. And what they mean by that is like, okay, that's too much. It's too much. Cut it out. Like, that's, that's enough. And I have to ask you, David, David cuts off his head. He doesn't just kill him, but he, he actually cuts off the head. And I think a number of people, when they have problems with the Bible, they, they look at things like this. It's like, yeah, he killed him. Well, why did he cut off his head? He cut off his head. That's, that's, that's a lot there. And so I have to ask you, is that extra? Is that gratuitous violence, as some would say? Is that too much? And I'd say, no, it's not gratuitous. It was necessary. It had to be the head. It had to be the head. Genesis 3.15 teaches us that Christ will crush the head of the serpent. So David must crush the head of this giant, scaly antichrist. He's a big dragon standing there. It had to be the head. So in this way, we see the picture clearly. 
Satan's time is short. Christ will come. So be courageous, people of God. Do not fear, for God fights on your behalf. And in the same way that Goliath fell down on his face, so did Dagon, the false god of the Philistines. He fell straight on his face. And just like Dagon had his head removed, Goliath gets the same treatment. It had to be the head. Because that's the promise in Genesis 3.15. And ultimately, this is a picture of what Jesus ultimately did. Christ came many generations after David. He defeated Satan once and for all. He crushed the head of the servant. He unfurled his plot. But if you're new to the things of the faith, you may not remember any specific instances in the New Testament where Christ actually steps on a snake and crushes a snake's head. Well, it it, it doesn't happen. Christ does not literally step on a snake's head. So how does he crush Satan's head? He broke Satan's stronghold. He crushed his head by going to the cross. That's what this is about. Jesus, some 2,000 years ago, went to the cross because he was the perfect man, it's the perfect sacrifice, and he took the penalty that you and I deserve on our behalf, and he unfurled the curse. He reversed it. He took it away, and that's the only way Satan could have been defeated. If it was, you know, just find Satan and cut off his head somewhere, Jesus could have done it. But there was a curse there placed upon humanity, and the only price that would have settled the account is blood, shed blood from a perfect, righteous sacrifice. So Jesus, to cut off the head, had to go to the cross. The one thing Satan could not do was let Jesus go to the cross and die. But Satan was tricked, wasn't he? Satan didn't know it. He thought he was winning, and Christ goes to the cross, and he dies. And there had to be a moment there where Satan thinks he wins, but Christ dies. And in that moment, Satan's head is crushed. His power is gone. Satan loses. His head is crushed. So if that's you this morning, if you do not yet believe it, that's the gospel. That's why we're here. That's why we celebrate as the serpent's head is crushed and that we, because of this good news, get to live our lives in thankfulness. Before moving on to some further application, take note that the chapter, it continues on for another several verses. Consider especially this interesting note. David takes the head of Goliath all the way to Jerusalem. This is verse 54. Why does he take the head to Jerusalem? This is before he meets with Saul. He just takes the head and goes to Jerusalem. As Richard Phillips has noted, Jerusalem was not in the possession of Israel yet. And Israel was promised by God that they would one day possess Jerusalem. So Jerusalem is part of the promised land. So David, in light of the promise, goes to Jerusalem But he takes the head. And the implication is that David did not just ride out to Jerusalem and then turn around once he got there. The implication is that he went to Jerusalem and showed people. 
We don't know exactly how this went down, but we can imagine David arriving at the city gates of Jerusalem. He's not there to fight. He's there just to show the head. And he's there to declare to Jerusalem that Yahweh is indeed greater than all other gods. I've got the serpent's head in my hand. Do you see it, Jerusalem? It's a forewarning. It's a foretaste of what's to come. There is a God unlike any other God, and he resides with David's people. That's why he goes to Jerusalem. It's to announce the victory. Let's move on to some application. I do want to make some application. The first is this. Be like David. First application, be like David. Uh, This is what many of us grew up hearing. But it's a good point. Uh, I, I say that we should be like David. I do so with qualification. Be like David in as much as David conformed to the will of God. David overall was a man after God's own heart. He did many wonderful things for the glory of God. He's a warrior, a king, shepherd. And literally, he was a shepherd also of God's people. He protected God's people and he sought their welfare. There are a number of ways we can be like him. I'll mention just three. And first, I want to speak to the, to the young folks, to the children, the teenagers. I say this to you especially. Do not let anyone despise you for your youth. Don't let anyone despise you for your youth. Be like David in this way. David kept, kept running into people saying, you're too young. You're inexperienced. But what did David have? He had the glory of God on his heart. And though he was young, he knew the right thing to do. And you, young folks, may find yourselves, in fact, you probably will find yourselves in a situation, especially in this day and age, where the people older than you tell you the wrong thing to do, and you must be like David in this way, and cut in a different path. Secondly, trust the Lord of the battle to fight for you. David himself knew that God would grant the victory, not a sling, not a shepherd's staff. Remember, David says, you come to me with all of these weapons, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. So David, God fought for David and for Israel. And in a similar way, God will work for his glory through you, no matter what trial or challenge you may be facing. Remember Romans, we too have a part to play and the stepping on of snakes' heads. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. I think this is what missionaries do. When they go out, and they're evangelizing, and they're telling people the gospel, and sinners are getting saved, you're transferring people from the domain of darkness to the the kingdom of light. That's what it means for us to step on the serpent's heads. We do so by the gospel Thirdly, concern yourself with the glory above all. If we have this sort of concern, it produces all sorts of good fruit. You've picked this up, I'm sure, by now. But David's zeal for God's honor energized him. If if you feel, yeah, I'm kind of lacking energy. You need to see the glory of God more clearly. The Philistine was cursing David by his gods, and that lit a fire in David. He had a passion for the glory of God to reign among the nations. And it got him up off the couch, so to speak. 
He went and did something about it. So zeal for the glory of God moves us to action. This is why we must study and pray and sing and contemplate the goodness of God. These sorts of things produce zeal within us, and zeal produces action. And then one last point of application, and I say this again to those who hear who may not yet believe in Christ as Lord and Savior. Submit yourself to the greater David. This passage should make it clear to you that the Bible is true. Now, David was fallible like you and I. He sinned in egregious ways. Though he was great, he still needed one to pay the penalty. And Christ did. So this day, repent of your sins and submit yourself to the greater David, Jesus Christ. Like David, born in Bethlehem. Like David, shepherd of God's people. Like David, he is a king and a man who sought the glory of the Father. But Jesus is better than David. He never sinned. He obeyed the law where David did not. And while David crushed the head of a Philistine giant, Christ crushed the skull of the prince of the power of the air. Ending the power of death, the Antichrist held over our heads. So because of Christ, one day there will be no more war, for he himself was torn, beaten, pierced, and placed upon a cross that all who look to him may be saved. Let's pray together. Father, we do pray for the salvation of lost souls this morning. And I pray for the encouragement of your people. That you will energize us with a zeal for your glory. And I pray it'll get us up off the couch. Spur us to action. For there is no God like you. I pray that we'll make that known. And I pray for your help that we may know specifically how you want us to make it known. In Christ's name we pray, amen.